Well, thanks, Kathy, uh, for bringing us that reading. I'd love you to keep that open. Uh, that's uh, Romans 5 there. That's where we're going to be camping out tonight. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great passage, and I'm really looking forward to bringing it to you. I've had fun in two other services today. We're going to enjoy the third one. Uh, I'm going to pray that God might help us uh, to win the benefit of what's in uh, this beautiful part of God's Word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you have preserved this letter to the church in Rome. We thank you for the words that Kathy's just read for us. We ask, Father, that through these words, you might challenge us to be different to the world around us, that your Holy Spirit might change us so that we take hold of these beautiful truths, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, uh, as we start, I want to remind you, there's question time at the end, and if you have a question on the way through, please just jot it down on your Caring Connect card, and that way you'll remember, and you'll be able to ask it after I have finished. I want to start off tonight by asking you, uh, what's the name of our church? New Life. Okay, so the name of the church is New Life. Well, well done, you've, you've started the service really well. Uh, so it's New Life, and my question for you is, uh, does it really feel like a new life for you? For you to live as a Christian, does that feel like a new life? What I mean by that is, are we really any different to the world that's around us? Are we really different to the world that's around us? And when I say that, I mean, are we different to the world around us when we face trials? When hardship comes, would you look at at ourselves and say, yep, we're different from our friends, our neighbours, because we love Jesus? Are we different when it comes to this beautiful thing that Ali uh, mentioned, that our self-worth? Are we different than our neighbours? Are, are we different when it comes to looking at the problems of this world and diagnosing it? Are we saying we see the world differently because we're Christians? And are we different when it comes to proposing solutions, maybe even particularly after a week like we've just had in federal politics? Are we different to the world around us in the solutions that we propose? Are we really made new in any significant sense? This one chapter, chapter 5, is one of my favourite chapters in Romans. And so, you know, you'll hear me say that a lot as we go through Romans. But I love chapter 5. And this one chapter has things to say about all of those points. So let's have a look. We're going to start by thinking about anxiety. And we look at a number of these on the way through the sermon. The first one is anxiety. Now, all of us get anxious when there's something pressuring coming up. So, so there might be an exam coming or you might have a job interview or something. Now, to get, to get anxious in those situations is perfectly normal. Anxiety, however, is the sense that you can't be free of this state of uncertainty and anxiousness. It might be an elevated heart rate, it might be your breathing, but you just can't get rid of it. Now, according to statistics I was reading this morning, one in three women will face that anxiety in their lives, and one in five men. Now, when it comes to anxiety, what are our solutions? We should seek, when it's anxiety that's settled in like that, we should seek help. And there is an underlying help that will come to you as a Christian. Not eliminate the need for professional help, but give you a base to start from. I want you to see it with me in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul's, we saw last week, Paul's been talking about justification by faith. That's what we're talking about last week. And that's why he has a therefore in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we gain access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. See, what's on offer is something a little bit like this picture here. Uh, this is one of my favourite places. I, I used to live in Wollongong. We, we lived in Wollongong for, uh, for six years, and Wollongong Harbour is one of those wonderful places. Does anyone know Wollongong Harbour? Yeah, it's just, it's just a beautiful spot. I absolutely love it. And when I go to Wollong, Wollongong Harbour, it's always a place for me, with the exception of the kids going a little bit crazy on the play equipment, but it's always a place for me of peace. And the peace in the harbour persists even when there's storms outside. And the reason that happens is because of these two things there. These two walls guard this little enclosed body of water so that it's at peace, whatever the storm is outside. And guys, I want you to see that that idea of safe harbour is a great picture of what God is offering to us. God is offering to protect us, to create for us a place that is safe and secure in Him. And it's made possible because we've been justified by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. A safe harbour for the people of God. That's the place of peace that He has won for us. But when the storms get up, Wollongong actually gets a pretty awesome spot to be. I don't know, has anyone been down there and seen the waves breaking on the, on the wall? It's fantastic, right? And almost inevitably, there are people standing on the wall getting drenched under the waves. And the reason they do it is because it feels safe. Even though it's awesome and powerful, it feels safe because of what you're standing on. The, the wall will protect you. It's stronger than the waves. But I want to suggest to you guys, in our lives... We have things that unsettle us, that make us uncertain, that give us that, that transient sense of uncertainty. And, and when that happens, I think we are often people who are more interested in watching the waves than the wall. So on a bad day, you'll find us watching the waves and not the wall. We'll be people who will be going, oh, that looks terrifying, as opposed to taking our stand on what we know is true and steadfast. On a bad day, you'll find us watching the waves and not the wall. But God offers us something better. If we'll trust in the wall, he'll give us a new peace. A new and beautiful quiet in our hearts. So anxiety is sometimes accompaniment to human living. Suffering is 100% accompaniment to, to human living. And it has no distinction between men and women. 100% of us will suffer in some way. Now, I know many of you to varying degrees. Some of you I don't know very well at all. But all of those of you that I know have experienced suffering and are in the midst of suffering in some way. The question we ask is, what do we do with it? Is it a waste? Is it just a loss in our lives? And this passage here has something beautiful to say to us. In order to win what this passage is saying to us, I was trying to think of an analogy. What's this like? And so let me tell you a little story about our house. When, when we, um, when we uh, do the veggies or, um, or chop up fruit or something, there's stuff left behind. There's, there's um, bits of fruit or, or veggie peelings or whatever. And what I need to do is, or somebody, needs to scoop them up and put them into this little plastic thing that's on the side of the bench. Now, it's a yucky job. I don't like touching it. I don't like opening the thing. I don't like putting it in. It's just yuck. It's rubbish, right? I don't like it. I might be particularly weird in this category, but you get the idea. Then there's actually a worse job. 
The worst job than that is when you've waited all the way through the day and the evening and to the next day and that night and someone finally has to empty that bin into the compost. Do you know know what I'm talking about? And when I was a kid growing up, emptying the compost bin was just a dreadful thing because the compost bin was at the end of the garden, it was dark and you had to walk through the spot. Anyway, you get the idea. Emptying the compost bin into, I mean the little bin, into the compost bin is just terrible. It's a mess. And when you get to the compost bin, what's the compost bin like? Disgusting. Little fly things, little worm things, and sn- nothing I like at all is there. But why do you persist with compost? You persist with compost because eventually, over time, it turns into beautiful soil. All this yucky, disgusting stuff, eventually, over time, after it's broken down, turns into soil. And while soil good, soil is good because eventually we can get back to the gardening and we can start producing something from what started off as rubbish. Have a look with me at what Paul says here. He says something incredibly bold in verse 3. Not only so, he says, but we also glory in our sufferings. Now, Paul isn't mentally deficient. He's also not someone who never had a hardship in his life. He knows jail. He knows beatings. He knows false accusations. He knows betrayal. And yet he says here he glories in We glory in our sufferings. Why? Why does he say that? And what sufferings is he talking about? The sufferings he's talking about include our pain, our tribulations, our stresses, our pressures, our loss. It's all included. But he says our suffering has a trajectory, has a purpose. It's going somewhere. He says our suffering produces perseverance. Suffering produces perseverance. And what's perseverance? It's not keep calm and carry on. It's not have a stiff upper lip. It's not suck it up. That's not what the Bible says. Perseverance is something better. It's enduring hardship with a Godward patience and joy. Now, I made up the word Godward, okay? But it's enduring. It's suffering through hardship looking to God. Not going, I'm so glad I'm upset today. That's not what we're talking about. But it's looking to God and saying, you're still good. God is so... We just sang it about 16 times. God is so good. That's the reason we sing these songs, so that you can start turning it over in your hearts. God is still good in the midst of our suffering. And so we endure with Godward patience and godly joy. And it's not just that we would persevere it. He actually is doing something even greater than that. Just as our compost has a better purpose, perseverance produces something of great worth. It produces character, the Bible says. And what is character? Character is spiritual maturity and depth won at cost. Spiritual maturity and depth won at cost. You see, you can't cheat this. You can't go down to Woolies and buy character. And character isn't the the big guy with a beard that you want to slap on the back and go, hey, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual depth and maturity, and it comes by patient perseverance in the midst of suffering. And you guys will have met people who have character, and you'll have marked them out in your life as people with credibility that you trust. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character does something amazing. From the rubbish of suffering comes the beauty of hope, (coughs) 
the Christian can know that nothing is wasted in God's economy. Nothing is wasted. Fruitful waiting is possible. And in the midst of our suffering, God is the gardener. God is doing something in the midst of our suffering. Yeah, 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 that's all great. But (laughs) what happens when we're in the middle of a bad day, on a bad day, on this journey where God is doing something with our suffering, on a bad day, if you catch me, I might just be in compost land, and compost on a bad day looks like smelly rubbish, flies and snails, doesn't it? And so if you stop midway through this process and go, what is God doing? It'll look foolish. But if you trust the process, God is doing something profoundly good in the midst of our suffering. He's producing something of hope. And so I want to tell you today, as hard as life is, God is, in the midst of all of our trials, giving us new purpose in the midst of suffering. What about uncertainty? When when we really are suffering, if you stop me in the compost moment, I might say, yeah, but is God good? You, You tell me he's working this process out. How do I know if he's any good? How can I trust that God loves me when it doesn't seem like it when I'm in the midst of suffering? The answer for that is found in the next couple of verses. Have a look with me at verses six to eight. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's three things to note here. The first thing is, at just the right time. It wasn't a random point when Jesus came. It was the right time. It was the right time in human history. It happened at a specific time and place. It happened when the Roman peace, the Pax Romana was in place. It meant there was a secure place for God's revelation to come. And because there was one language all the way around, that revelation could spread like wildfire. It was the right time in terms of the revelation of God to the Jews. They had a temple in place, all the sacrifices were there, and Jesus came to fulfill them at just the right time. And what did he come to do? Well, he came to save those who needed saving. It says in this passage, this is a very unflattering view of humanity. We wonder when we're suffering, hey, could God love me? Well, he loved you when you were, it says here, ungodly, still powerless, and still sinners. Were you lovely at that point? And yet God loved you. And what did he do God demonstrated his love. We say, we say, don't just talk about it, show me. Do, do you know this? Yeah? Don't just tell me you love me, show me you love me. And the bloody cross shows us God loves us. God demonstrates his love. The word in action, death for life, enemies reconciled. That's what the cross tells me. So in the midst of your suffering, you go, God, can you love me? Do you love me? Have you forgotten me? The cross says... Yes. Yes, he does. On a bad day, the cross looks like an unnecessary disaster. But for the Christian, we look to the cross and find a new picture of the love of God assured to us. Well, what about the future? What about the unknown? 100% of us will worry about the future. What's happening tomorrow? 
We can be work school, thank you. Kids know. What's happening? What's the future? The future is kids answering rhetorical questions. That is the future, okay? It's beautiful. I love it. Have, have a look at how the future is laid out here in verses 9 to 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, what's God, what's God doing? There's two horizons that I want you to see. The first thing is that when we say yes to Jesus, we avoid the storm. We avoid the storm. There was a storm coming to destroy us, the wrath of God, but enemies have now been embraced as children. God turned aside his wrath. We're now his children. But we see there's actually something still to come in our salvation. Have a look at verse 11. Oh, sorry, verse 9. It says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So you've been saved, that's right. Tonight you're saved if you're trusting in Jesus. But there's a day coming when God will send his son to return. On that day, God will call all the people before his throne and he will say, who goes for glory and who goes to hell? What will happen on that day? Well, what this is saying is we will be saved from God's wrath on that day too. The future has been forecast. Our present justification will be followed by future salvation. You might not trust the weather forecast. Apparently it was going to be rain. You might not trust the political forecast. Who knew that we were going to have Scott Morrison as our Prime Minister? But you can trust God's forecast of the future. You will be saved on the final day if you're trusting Jesus. And more than that, let me take you back to my little harbour. Imagine you're at the boat in the harbour, okay? God's done more than just saving us. He's actually dropped a pilot on board our boat. Does anyone know what a pilot is on a boat? A person who steers the boat. So there's a captain on the boat. A pilot is another person who comes onto the boat, who knows the local waters and the challenges of the tides and will guide a foreign ship into safe harbour. God has given us a pilot for our ship. He has given us the person of his son, his, of his Holy Spirit. Sorry, Have a look with me in verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom has, who he has given to us. So God has saved us and he's given us a pilot to make sure he'll see us safely home. On a bad day, the future looks too far away. But for the Christian who's trusting Jesus, we have a new plan with a guaranteed outcome. Now at this point, Kathy only read up to verse 11, which is exactly what I asked her to do. The rest of chapter 5 involves quite a complex argument. And I would normally have just stopped the sermon there, but I want you to see this great thing. So tonight, are you ready to push deeper? Are you ready to grab hold of this beautiful truth of God? Yeah, that's good. That's great. See, I'm now encouraged that you're ready, okay? We, Paul goes on and he says, okay, you, you may have heard that God loves you. You might have heard that he's doing something with suffering. But you might have the question, why is there so much sin and death in the world? 
Sin and death comes to 100% of men and women. Why is it there? Here's what he has to say. He has to say something that we don't accept. And we don't accept it for two reasons. First of all, we're not 2,000 years old. Paul was writing to a church that was in Rome 2,000 years ago. He was writing to a group of people who think differently to us. They thought corporately and we think individually. What, what does that mean? Individualism. I'm the only one able to impact my destiny and my happiness justifies any end. In other words, who do I need to take a picture of right now? Me. I don't need to take a picture of you. I define my life. I'm the most important person in the world. The selfie is what we're all about. And in a world of selfies where I'm the boss, there is no sin. The world out there can't explain sin and death because it doesn't have any sin. The second reason the world can't explain sin and death is because of what I've called incrementalism. Bear with me. Bear with me. Incrementalism. Here's what I mean by that. Human beings are just the latest animal on the continuum from monkeys. That's what the world says, right? We're just a monkey in a jacket. That's what we are. That's what human beings are. And if we're just a monkey in a jacket, when did sin start? Can monkeys sin? They might steal your keys, but it's not really probably sin because they're not moral. So when, when do we get the first? If there's no difference between human beings and monkeys, really, there's no first sin. There is no sinner to start the process. Individualism and incrementalism mean we don't have any sin. It's not a problem. But that's not the way the Bible thinks. Have a look with me at verses 15 to 19. But the gift, he's talking about Adam and Jesus. And he's talking about what Jesus has done. And he calls it a gift. And he talks about what Adam has done. And he calls it a trespass or a sin. Have a listen. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came from the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all men, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Now, I'm thinking all of you love that and thought that was very clear. Is that right? Let me try and explain it. I'm going to explain it by going to the moon. Okay? Bear with me. See if this works. Okay. I'm going to take you to the moon. Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon. Anyone know what date? I think it was the 6th of August, 1969, something like that. Here's what happened when Neil Armstrong stood on the moon. He was the first man. He said, that is one small step for a man. How many people had been on the moon when Neil Armstrong got there? Good answer, right, no, none. So he said, I'm going to take a step. 
It's one small step for a man. And what did he say next? Fantastic. You guys know it. One giant leap for mankind. There was a sense in which although he was one man, he was representative of all of humanity in doing that. We can say we have been to the moon through the person of Neil Armstrong. Do you get this? We have been to the moon. And so there's the one step that applies to the many. And so we have been to the moon is a right statement. I want to take you to Adam. Adam was the first man. And we could say it was one giant sin for a man. One giant sin for mankind. See, Adam sinned, and as the head of all humanity, we sin with him. We're counted as part of him. And so his disobedience brought condemnation, not just for him. From the one man comes condemnation for the many, so we together experience death. How did death come into the world? One man, Adam, brought death for all people. Now, that'd be a pretty sad story, except there's a better story. There's another one like Adam, one who is not going to mess it up. Jesus is the man who metaphorically walked on the moon. You and I can't get to the moon on our own. Jesus lived a holy life. He never sinned. That is walking on the moon. Jesus lived a holy life. And what it says, through one giant life of obedience for a man, produced one giant justification for mankind. See, Jesus was obedient and he brought justification. The one man brought justification and life for many. Do you see this? Fantastic. And so therefore, death came into the world through Adam. That's the terrible default for humanity. And life came into the world through Jesus, the beautiful offer for humanity. There's a wonderful passage that was read for us there in 1 Corinthians 15, which I won't refer to. I'll just take you to verse 22 of chapter 15. It says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We have a destiny depending on who our head is. Who are we into? Who are you into? If you're into Adam, death. If you're into Jesus, life. We have a new place to be in Jesus. So let's see if we can put all this together. I'm going to give you a drawing. Okay, I like drawing. This is my drawing. Uh, you don't generally get to see my drawings because I like photos, but this is my drawing. I want to see if I can bring the whole sermon together around this picture. All right, you ready? Here we go. Okay. Outside of the people of God, a storm is raging. It's a storm of uncertainty and doubt and fear and death. That's the storm. Inside Jesus, there is peace. There is a place where we can be at peace. Outside is Adam. Inside is in Jesus. How does that come about? How do we get into Jesus? Well, someone turns the gospel lighthouse on and we see, hey, in the storm, there's a safe harbour there. The light comes to us and we go to the safe harbour. The harbour door is then closed. How is it made safe? It's made safe by the justification of Jesus on the cross. We then have a harbour, a safe place, and there's two walls in the harbour. 
One of the walls is intellectual. It uses your mind. We need to trust that God has a process in the midst of our suffering. We need to know that so that we can have hope. We also need to know that the cross enables us to find life. That's intellectual. The other side is experiential. I want you to know the love of God. Do you know it? Christianity isn't just about filling your head with knowledge. It's meeting the living God. Do you know his love in your heart? The place of peace is bordered by intellect and experience, made possible through the cross. And so because of that, we can have great assurance because we've been reconciled with God and he didn't just save us. He actually dropped the Holy Spirit, his pilot, into our vessel and said, brothers and sisters, one day the storm will be finished and we'll have great adventures. That's our message. Tonight, if you're lacking personal peace, I want to ask you, are you watching the waves or trusting in the wall? If you're engaging with suffering, do you say, God has forsaken me or God is growing me? If you're looking for assurance today, are you looking to your story or his story? If you're looking for assurance for tomorrow, are you dominated by fear or do you take great comfort in the forecast? One day, we will know for sure that we will stand in the, in the presence of God. And as we look at the human condition, the death and the sin around us, are we people who are in Adam or in Christ? Something should be radically changed if we're Christians in this world. Does it really feel like a new life to you? Me, I want to know peace. And the path to peace is knowing that we have messed it up in Adam. And he, Jesus Christ, has paid the price. And if I know that, I can take incredible peace and comfort from the fact that God is the gardener. He redeems the rubbish. He writes a better story in the mess of my life. I can know that it happened in history. When I doubt, I can look to history and see God loves me. And I can therefore trust the forecast that says, one day I will stand redeemed in the presence of my King. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, these great truths are available only from your word. We can't figure it out on our own. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us. You offered us peace at great price. And I pray for all of us tonight that intellectually we might be assured that experientially we might be comforted, that God, our God, you might pour your peace into our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, that's a bit of stuff. Uh, have you got any questions? Are there questions arising from what we've um, seen tonight? <coughs> there are. Come on. Is that right? 
<laughs> I explained it too well. I'm happy to sit down. I don't have to do question time. I do, I do, yeah, there's a question at the back. Oh. <coughs> Sorry. Alec. Um, what happens to the ones who just can't persevere? Can you uh, flesh it out a little bit more? Uh, people that just can't cope with the suffering that they're going through and they can't get to the perseverance stage so then they can't build character and they can't get to hope. Yeah. I don't think that this passage is designed to beat up the weak. I think it's supposed to encourage us as we struggle. If you fail, you're not failing. The God who loved you when you were ungodly sinners must love you when you trip over trying to persevere under hardship. He must love us then. And if there's grace to forgive me for my sin, there will be grace to love me in my failure. And so all I'd say to you is, I think this chart's had a trajectory of hope. Suffering isn't worthless. John Piper wrote an incredible article a while ago, I'm sure you can Google it, called, God, Please Don't Waste My Cancer. And what he's saying is, God will redeem the muck. He'll take the garbage of our lives and become the gardener, if we'll let him. And mate, if we mess it up, I want to trust that the God who did that for me can love me back onto my feet again, even as I mess it up. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Okay, so in your talk, you talked about, about how um, like we go through struggles and we have to persevere. Um, because there's always a purpose for everything. Mm. Like I know from personal experience and also like it's really hard to understand that God actually has a purpose for most things. Yeah. And I was asking because especially I have a lot of non-Christian friends even though I go to an Anglican school. So how would you help explain that to someone that's going through a really hard time but they don't believe in God? Yeah, I think that's really good. That's a great question. And, and we will find ourselves loving people who don't know Jesus, don't we? Um, here's what I'd say. I think the benefits of knowing that God is working for your good in the midst of rubbish are one when we submit to him as Lord. And to try and offer the consolation to people who don't have the king doesn't work. D does that make sense? So you can take great heart that God is the gardener in the midst of the rubbish you can. But to say to someone else, don't worry, God's got you, I think just bounces off the surface of a hard heart towards him. I'd pray for them to be saved rather than pray for them to understand this beautiful blessing that Christians enjoy. Do, do you see? And so I can't really offer to the person who's saying, God, get lost. I love running my life my own way. A word of encouragement that says, God loves you and is working something good through him. Do, do you understand? We, we're just and so I want to say to, you, to your non-Christian friend, there can be purpose in the midst of this disaster, but it's found in giving everything, including this rubbish, to God. Rather than saying, don't worry, God's got you, which isn't actually, that's not where they're up. Do you understand? So I'd be praying for their salvation loving them the best way you can, but not offering them a Christian consolation when they don't have God as their king. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, great. Okay. That's good. Thanks, guys. I, I love this part of the Bible. I think it's extraordinary. And I hope that you take great heart from it tonight and that um, you find some ships safe at harbour. <laughs>